Before I pray, let me tell you where we, Lord willing, are going in the preaching this summer. Today and next week, we'll finish John 14. On the 17th, I will tackle the topic of homosexuality and the so-called homosexual marriage. On the 24th, there'll be a guest preacher, uh, uh, Ed, help me, Stetzer. This is what happens when you're 66. Don't laugh, it's coming. <laughs> Ed Stetzer in 1 Peter 2. And, uh, and then I'm excited that we'll do a nine-week summer series on 2 Timothy, and we'll call it To Him Be Glory Forever and Ever, Unashamed of Christ and Ready to Suffer. And I'll do five of those, Lord willing, and then we'll draw in some other pastors for the other four when I'm on vacation. Summer is for seeing and savoring and showing Jesus Christ. And so wherever you go on vacation or at home or in your travels, don't fail to keep your eyes open for Him and to gather with God's people in corporate worship. The point of today's text is that though Jesus has gone away into heaven, He has not gone away but is with us and will never leave us and never forsake us. So let's pray that we would experience this promise. Father, in Bucharest and in Geneva and in Hamburg, that came true again for me. There is no place you can go during the summer or winter or fall, or spring, no place on earth or in space where Jesus Christ is not manifestly present to his people. And how I thank you for the manifestations of yourself, Jesus, and ask that you would stand forth now from your word and bestir yourself by your spirit so that each one of your own would know that they are the home of Jesus Christ. And if any is unbelieving, make this sound so good they could no longer resist the truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives He lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? Finish it. And my prayer is that at the end of this message, that song, we'll sing it, that song 
will be more true, more sweet, and that the experience of the presence of the living Christ in your life will be palpably, unmistakably, authentically real. That's my prayer. This text, verses 15 to 24, was spoken by Jesus, as you know, maybe 12 hours, maybe 10 hours before the most important event in the history of the world. Just hours before the greatest act that has ever been or will ever been performed of love. Namely, the death of the Son of God on behalf of sinners. So that whoever believes would have all their sins forgiven and would be accepted as righteous in God's sight and would be adopted into God's family and would inherit infallibly everlasting joy in His presence. These words are in that shadow and you must hear them that way. Hear them as gospel words, blood-bought words. Don't abstract them out, dangling somewhere other than Gethsemane. Jesus said, I will lay down my life for my sheep. And here are 11 of these sheep now. And us. And these sheep are very confused. They need a lot of encouragement because they know, because he has said so, he's leaving. And that's not what they signed up for. And this text is the word of Christ to frightened and confused and fearful disciples who want to understand, well, what's what's the deal when you're gone? Like he is, right? Where, Where is he? So it's to you. And my, oh my, what encouragement is here. Breathtaking things are promised to you in this text. So ask the Lord in your heart right now to give you ears to hear and eyes to see the stunning things that are promised to you concerning what's going to be true about you in relation to him when he's gone. It's amazing. I have two introductory observations and then two other questions to answer. So here's the first introductory observation. As Jesus makes these promises in this text to his own, he makes very clear two or three times that what he's offering you He's not offering the world. What you are going to experience if you believe these promises, the world cannot experience. And he makes it explicit. And I want us to feel this is for us. This isn't just thrown out on the world. This is coming to people. And we'll see who those people are. So let me show you this. Verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. For He dwells with you and will be in you. You see how it's dividing the world? This is for you. Verse 19, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Cutting the world right in half here. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, not the betrayer, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. So three times he makes clear, I'm giving you something special. This is for you. It's not for them. This is personal. This is intimate. This is reciprocal. This is a relationship. The world cannot see it, cannot know it, will not taste it. Know this, Christian. You do not just have things that the world can experience. You have something absolutely unique. That's observation number one. Number two, introductory observation. Those who do receive these gifts, these promises, this love, are not called Christians generically. They're not called believers. They are people, it says, who love Jesus. You can't miss this. It's said four times. It is the main theme that he wants to hammer home. What he's about to give us that's special to us and precious for us and intimate for us that the world doesn't know, can't taste, doesn't receive, doesn't experience, is given to people who love Him. Verse 15. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments, and I will, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. That's what you get if you love Me. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and I and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. This is not a love he has for the world. It's personal, intimate, relational, affectionate, committed. Love from the Father only for those who love Jesus. Only. Verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him. John 3.16 is still in the book. That's not the point here. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. True. And oh, there is so much more for you. 
than just an offer scattered across the world. So much more. Read it again, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. In response to his love for Jesus. Now, you're a well-taught church. You know from Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, so the love of God precedes my love for Jesus I'm still a sinner and he dies to to rescue me and enable me to love Jesus. That's still in the book. And John thinks that way. 1 John 4, 19. Not that we loved him, that he loved us, or we love because he first loved us. That's not the point in this text. Don't Lose your blessing by thinking that's the point. That's the only reason any of you is saved. He loved you. He pursued you like the hound of heaven, tracked you down, overcame your rebellion, drew you to himself, gave you faith, covered your sins by his blood. Now what? That's what this text is about. Now you love him. And because you love him, he's got another love for you. Oh, how sweet, how precious, how personal, how intimate, how unique in the universe is the love of God for those who love Jesus. Let's read verses 21 and 23 again, just so you see. This is not my word. This is the word of Jesus. Whoever, this is verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And nobody else gets that kind of love but those who love Jesus. Or verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. So, can we handle this? You got, you got a mind biblical enough and big enough for this? The only reason anybody loves Jesus is because they were first loved by God. Got that? Romans 5, 8, 1 John 4, 19. And when you love Jesus, Almighty God comes to you with something more for his own. That's what I want you to enjoy. It's the key to obedience. It's the key to worship. It's the key to life. It's the key to assurance. It's the key to hope. It's the key to marriage. It's the key to parenting. It's the key to overcoming sin. To know him like this, not just as the object of generic global love, Now, those are my two introductory observations. Namely, that he explicitly says, what I have for you, the world can't know. 
What I have for you, the world can't receive, it can't experience. And what I have for you is for those who love my son or Jesus, those who love me. Now, two more questions to answer. What does it mean to love Jesus? Because you, you need to be asking right now, wow, that means if I love him, there's something really, really, really amazing for me. And I don't want to miss it. So do I? And to answer that question, you have to know, what is it? Well, what does it mean to love Jesus? And the second question is, um, what are you promised if you do in this text? Let's take those one at a time. What does it mean to love Jesus? Four times in this text, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments or my word. So let's read those. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24. Reverse. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Now, what can we infer from that? Well, we can infer something very clear and very important. Namely, loving Jesus is not obeying Jesus. But the source of obeying Jesus. Obeying Jesus and doing what He commands and keeping His Word is not love for Jesus. It comes from love for Jesus. It's the result of loving Jesus, not the same as loving Jesus. Let's just read it again, verse 15. If you love me, the result will be you'll keep my commandments. They're not the same. Or verse 23, if anyone loves me, the result will be he'll keep my word. This is massively important because of how many people read these texts and flip the switch immediately to turn love into a list of things to do. Sad and tragic. It's a killer in the Christian life if you, if you think love is that. Deadly. Kills churches, kills people, kills families. See, love is doing. <laughs> what a tragic marriage that would be. And some marriages are like that. When all the heart is gone. So what is love for Jesus? Jesus has... No defects, right? We all agree with that. Jesus has no defects. Jesus has no flaws or faults or demerit. So, we cannot and we dare not love Him the way God loves us. I don't deserve anything but judgment from God. And he loves me in spite 
of my sin. We don't love Jesus in spite of anything, but because of everything that he is. Jesus is entirely deserving of our love in its most intense form. Jesus is entirely worthy of being loved. Jesus is perfectly lovely. How do you love somebody like that? You don't love him graciously. Like, oh, I gotta use, I gotta stir up some grace here because Jesus isn't isn't beautiful, isn't good. No, no, no. Don't go there. That's blasphemy. You don't love Jesus the way he loves you. Which means that love for Jesus is a response to his beauty and his greatness and his glory. It's not a response to his need or his weakness or his flaws like God's is for us. Which means that loving Jesus is pleasurable. If desiring, it's, it's, it's desiring him because he's infinitely desirable. It's admiring him because he's infinitely admirable. It's treasuring him because he's infinitely valuable. It's enjoying him because he's infinitely enjoyable. And it's being satisfied in him because he's infinitely Satisfying. That's what loving Jesus means. It's a reflex of new birth. Once you had a soul whose taste buds found him bland or even bitter, then you were born again and you licked the gospel. And for the first time, it caused a high. What was that? You saw him. You tasted and saw that the Lord was good. That's new birth. You must be born again to see, to taste this Jesus. You can't love Jesus if you're not born again because he'll taste bad. He won't be beautiful. He won't be lovely. He won't be satisfying. He won't be attractive. He won't. He just, he'll just be duty, like you're supposed to. I don't, really, I don't want to go to hell. And they say that not to go to hell, you're supposed to believe on him. And I don't find anything beautiful or attractive or satisfying or enjoyable, but I'm going to say some right words. That's not love. In short... Loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. Doing excellent things, Jesus says, flows from delighting in an excellent Savior. Now, two confirmations from the Gospel of John that we're on the right track, all right? So I'm arguing that loving Jesus is an affair of the heart 
by which you enjoy him because you see how enjoyable he is and you treasure him because you see how valuable he is and you're satisfied in him because you see how satisfying he is. His glory, his goodness, his beauty, his truth are satisfying to your soul. Come to me, eat, drink, be satisfied. That's what I'm saying love for Jesus is. Before there's any doing at all. If you love me, you will do. If you love me, you will do. The doing is later. Fruit. It's called fruit, not root. Now, my question is, that just sounds so wonderfully Christian hedonistic that I must be reading my views in here. Okay, I'm just scared to death of doing that. This is God's Word. I'm not. So I'm always, all right, looks really good. I'm loving what I'm seeing. Confirmations, John, help me. And here's two of them. Um, the word love in the Gospel of John is used this way more than once. I'll give you a few examples. John 3.19 People loved darkness rather than light. What does that mean? They wanted it. They liked it. They preferred it. Protected them from conviction. So to love there is to feel a desire. Keep me in the dark. I love the dark. I don't like light. It shows roaches in my life. So love, the word love, agapao, means crave, desire, want, prefer, desire. Here's another one. John 12, 43. They loved the glory of man rather than the glory of God. What does that mean? They wanted it. They longed for it. They craved human praise. Ooh, it feels so good to be admired. And it was so strong, they couldn't believe in Jesus. We are controlled by what we love this way. Here's another one. John 3.35. This time, very positive. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What does that mean? How does the Father love the Son? Not the way he loves us. <laughs> Jesus never sinned. He didn't even be died for. He's been loved from all eternity in the infinite energy of the Trinity. We get a little glimpse of this anywhere in the New Testament. Yes, we do. Baptism. Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now let yourself be God for a minute. You got infinite energy and you just said over your son, well pleasing. That's not small. That's infinite power and energy. This is my boy and I love him infinitely. He pleases me. I want him forever. 
at my side, finishing his work. Oh, I am pleased by my son. Same thing at the transfiguration. This is my son. Hear him, and he is pleasing to me. So, those three instances just show that the word love means, without any fanfare, craving, delighting, enjoying, wanting, preferring, not some kind of gracious condescension to love the Son in spite of His flaws, or us loving Jesus in some dutiful, noble way by which we rise above His inadequacies and treat Him well. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Either He is satisfying to our soul or we don't love Him. Esteem, admire, enjoy, treasure, stand in trembling, happy awe. That's what it is to love. It's my first confirmation. Confirmation number two that we're on the right track. Namely, what might Jesus have in mind when he says, if you love me, you keep my commandments? What commandments? Now, of course, if you're just reading this kind of in the air, you think, well, the Sermon on the Mount is full of commandments. And Well, let's just stay with John and ask, John, I'm going to read you from front to back and look for commandments. That's what I did. Just want to see what you might have in mind here, here. And if you go through the first time asking, where are the moral behavior commandments in the Gospel of John? Like, you know, wash your disciples' feet. Wash your neighbor's feet. Okay, that's one. Do unto others as, as I have done to you tonight, do also to each other. That's, that's one. Love the great, the new commandment, chapter 13, verse 35. Love one another as I have loved you. That's pretty practical. Peter at the end, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That's three. That's it. <laughs> Whoa. Really? Yeah, try it. However, if you read it again and you ask a different question, like, okay, now we're going to look for all the commandments, not just the moral behavior commandments, okay? All the commandments in John. You know what you find? You find this. Receive me, 112. Follow me, 143. Get up, crippled man. 5.8. Rise from the dead, Lazarus. 11.43. Believe in the light. 12.36. Believe in God. 14.1. Believe me. 14.11. Abide in me. 15.4. Ask whatever you wish. 15.7. Abide in my love. 15.9. Receive the Holy Spirit. 20.22. And they're everywhere. What's that? That's my word to you. You keep that. Oh, yes, if you, if you keep that, other things are going to follow. 
But the dominant, the dominant demand, demand, the dominant demand is receive me, believe me, trust me, follow me, feed on me, rest in me, abide in me, receive my spirit, ask for help, rise from the dead, start walking, crippled man. All these commands are commands for us to receive him. Know him more. Amazing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, how is that a confirmation of where we've been on love? How is that a confirmation? If the commands are overwhelmingly receive me, believe me, ask of me, abide in me, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, to say, if you love me, you'll do that. If you desire me and delight in me as a treasure, then you'll receive me when I offer you myself as a treasure. That's a command. Receive me. Believe me. Accept me. You'll obey that command if you love him. I want you. And he says, I'm yours. Have me. Okay. Good. Love produced obedience to the command, receive me. Believe me. But first there was the delight. First there was the satisfaction. First there was the awakening to his infinite value and we're treasuring him. And now we're hearing him say, take me. Feed on me. Abide in me. Let sap from me flow through you. Those are all commandments that What else would you do if you want him? If you love him. So, if you're born again so that you treasure Jesus above everything and he says, receive me, take me, have me as your treasure, you'll do it. You'll obey. If you're born again so that you consider him supremely and wonderfully trustworthy and he says, trust me, you'll do it. Because that's what you cherish about him. If you're born again and you want to spend time with him and he says, abide in me, you'll do it. You'll obey. You'll keep his word. But it all hangs on, has he become your treasure and your trustworthy savior and your home where you want to abide? If he hasn't, then those commands will be unappealing to you and you won't go there. So that's my two confirmations that we're on the right track. And so I take my stand here and I say, when Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my words and all these blessings that we're now about to talk about, all these gifts, all this love is going to be yours. What he means is, If you treasure me, if you delight in me, if you enjoy me, if you're satisfied in me, if you rest in me, if you're attracted to me, you get the special thing now. And of course you can see, can't you, that Christianity has to be supernatural because you do not have the power to like Jesus tonight. You have the power to do stuff, right? Do stuff. You come to church, did that. You go home and not look at porn and 
not watch a dirty movie and you can do stuff, but you can't flip a switch right now and say, I enjoy him. I'm satisfied in him. I'm attracted to him. I love spending time with him more than anybody else. You can't make that happen. That is called the new birth. And when you're embattled, which you are, and I am, it's called sanctification. We rise and we fall in our delights, right? Some days he's everything and other days what's wrong with me? I must be drifting away. God have mercy. And he does. Last question. That question was what does it mean to love Jesus? Now the last question is and if you do what does he promise you in this text? The sum of what he promises you is that the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus himself will come to you and reveal themselves to you and love you and help you and comfort you and never leave you, ever. That's what you get. A manifestation of the living Christ that nobody else can have but those who love Jesus. That's what you all want, isn't it? I don't want my life to be a logical inference from Bible statements, right? Like, oh, Bible says this, Bible says this, infer I do this. That's really a sad way to live the Christian life. You want a manifestation of the reality of the risen Christ. Is he real? Is he here? Can I have an experience with him that's more than a logical inference from doctrines? Yes, you can. And that's what the rest of this is about. Verse 16. Let's just, what we want to do is just walk through the verses. I don't have any particular system, systematized way of putting them together this time. I just, I just want to go bullet, 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 and let the way Jesus says it penetrate your heart. That's what I hope the Holy Spirit will do as we go verse by verse to say, what is he going to give me if I love him? Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. When he calls him another helper, he means it's not me. I'm the helper now, and I'm asking the Father, so it's not the Father. The Father's going to send him, and it's not me. So who is it? It's the Holy Spirit. Verse 26 says it flat out right. The helper, the Holy Spirit. He's called the helper here. He's called the Holy Spirit in verse 26. So the first thing is that he's going to send God, the Holy Spirit, into your Life when he returns to heaven, which he did. So when you love Jesus, you experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. 
even the spirit of truth, and he's defining the spirit as the spirit of truth, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the helper who comes, the Holy Spirit, is the spirit of truth, which I think means that the primary way he does his helping is by opening your eyes to see the glories and the truths of Jesus. If you don't see Jesus as beautiful, ask the Holy Spirit to to do that for you. Because that's his main job. He came into the world to glorify Jesus, and he glorifies Jesus by being the spirit of truth. I am the truth, so he opens your eyes to see the truth. All of us in this room have eyes that are closing and opening all the time. That's why Paul prays for the eyes of the Christian heart in Ephesians 1.17. He prays that the Christian's eyes be opened. Like, okay, your eyes can start to go shut, which means TV is looking really attractive and Jesus is not. Money is looking really attractive, Jesus is not. Marriage is looking really attractive, Jesus is not. Success in job is looking really attractive and Jesus is not. What's happening? Your eyes are starting to shut. And Paul prays, oh God, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, open their eyes, let them see truth. Truth. Spirit, you're a spirit of truth. And when you see what's really there, you don't need any inferences anymore. It's just beautiful. Right? So, oh, this, this has contours. It must be beautiful. I will conclude it's beautiful. Nobody, nobody functions that way. If you see beauty and your eyes are open, you feel love for beauty. Your eyes are not open, it's boring. Verse, uh, let me see one more word about verse 17. The world doesn't know him, you know him, for he dwells with you, will be in you. I think that means in my presence right now, you're enjoying uh, an experience of the Spirit through my ministry, and it's going to be different then. It's going to be different then. Because I'm going to come by the Spirit as the risen Christ. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's sweet. I'm going to leave you as orphans. What do orphans need? (laughs) They need a daddy and a mommy. They need food and they need protection and they need guidance. I'm not going to leave you without any of that. I'm going to come and whatever an orphan needs, I'm going to make sure you have what you need. Verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. So in three days I'm going to rise from the dead. And I am not going to start my ministry over again. I'm not going to appear to any of those worldly people. I'm going to appear to you. After the resurrection, he didn't embark on a new earthly ministry. He simply prepared his own for his departure. You see me? I'm going to give you some assurance. Many infallible proofs. I'm going to give them to you. And then you're going to put into words what you have seen so that others can enjoy your assurance from then on. Verse 20, in that day you will know, no, 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 this is assurance, you will know that I'm in the Father and you in me and I in 
you. So when they see him and experience him, put their hands in his side, fall down before him and eat fish with him, they're going to know this has all been true. Everything he said was true. He's one with the Father. We're one with him. He's one with us. We know. And wow, what came over those assured apostles in those days. Verse 21, second half of the verse. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I think this is the best of all. The Father has a special, close, family love for those who love Jesus. Not, it's not John 3.16. This is love for a bride, love for a friend, love for a child, love for an intimate. It's better. And what that love causes Jesus to do is manifest himself to them. That's what I want more than anything in this life and ultimately in the life to come. I want to know. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. There are a lot of people who criticize that song. Like, well, it's this see Jesus stuff. He's in heaven. Well, yeah, I know that. Everybody knows that. It's this. I'm going to manifest myself to you. Oh, I'd love to just talk about Bucharest and Geneva and Hamburg and and just any little stress of your life. If if in the hardest times of your life you go to him, there are manifestations of himself that you get when you go there starving for his help and satisfied in him. He will show you things about himself you won't get on the summery days. Verse 23, in answer to Judas, not the betrayer's question, why not to the world, Lord? Why, why aren't you going to do all this for the world? Why just us? And he doesn't answer him. He just repeats himself because he doesn't have anything else to say besides this. If anyone loves me, in other words, that's the door. If the world had that, they'd have it. And preach the gospel to the whole world. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Make our home with him. This is good. That word for home, used one other time in the gospel. You know where? You wouldn't know where. It's chapter 2 of this chapter. I go to prepare the place for you. In my Father's house are many... Same word. What's the implication? In my Father's house are many of these homes... It's only, only these two places this word is used. Many homes, many dwellings. And verse 23. I will come to him. And the Father will come. And we will make our home with him. My paraphrase. You love Jesus. You get heaven on earth. This is about as good as it can get. 
I'm preparing this thing for you in heaven. And you know what it is? It's me and my Father. You're going to dwell in us and with us and be satisfied there. We'll be your sun. We'll be your moon. And you know what? If you love me here, we're going to do that right here now. That's amazing. So, we conclude. Bethlehem love Jesus delight in Jesus treasure Jesus be satisfied in Jesus abide in Jesus let your joy overflow in the keeping of all of his word and touching other people's lives and if you do here's what you get the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit will come to you and they will be a helper. The Holy Spirit, in particular, will help you, comfort you. You won't be an orphan. You'll be protected. You'll be provided for. And you will be guided A special love will come to you. I will love you, the Father says. And Jesus says, I'll manifest myself to you. And we together will make you our home now, heaven on earth. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I ask that when someone asks us, so you say you serve a living Savior. You say he's in the world today. You say you can see his hand and hear his voice. You say he's alive. How do you know? I pray that without any artificiality, we would be able to answer, I know, because he's in my heart. He's made me his home. He has manifested himself to me through his word in the gospel. I have beheld his glory. And he has comforted me inexplicably in times of great trial. He has come through for me. He has never forsaken me. I know. May that come true. I pray for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.